Hey, welcome to the ultra-primitive modern world. It is primitive out there, people. As is often the case, I just got back from the grocery store. There's a long tradition on every night's a school night and night school of doing these right after I get home from the grocery store. I think there's something there. I think the grocery store gets my brain moving in ways. I think it's, I mean, really, I mean, I feel like it's the essence of humanity. I feel like the the grocery store is the essence of modern humanity. And if I don't notice something when I'm at the store, I'm at least thinking about it. I'm at least thinking about everything going on around me. And I'm really, it's how I gauge people. That's actually what it is. Grocery stores are how I kind of gauge my local climate. Because I can sense how people are feeling. And I can tell you lately, and today it really felt like it was all coming to a head. Maybe because I went around, I mean, it's five o'clock right now. So I guess I was getting all the people who were, you know, out of school, uh, I guess school's not going on, people who just got off work. But, uh, you know, being being there, I'm just like, people are in an incredibly primitive mindset. And it's a different primitive mindset than they had a year and a half ago when Coronavi hit and they were like all flooding the stores to stock up. And because people right now, what I noticed is that people are all wearing their masks there's all of the coronavirus hysteria in the air again, but they're not respecting your space. There's no attempt to even, you know, if it comes down to like letting a person go ahead of you, they're just going to go. And that's primitive. Like I was looking at the, I, you know, if someone's standing in front of something for a very long time, I will say, hey, I need to get, I need to get to this. But I had just walked up to the nut aisle. I just walked up to the nuts. And within like seconds, this woman like reached over me, reached past me, like a complete invasion of my space. I didn't say anything because that's the other thing is because people are in such a primitive mindset that they're going to be showing no remorse. They're going to show no remorse for cutting in front of you, for reaching over you. That's what's going on right now. And that wasn't going on a year and a half ago. Hey, Batty, um, that wasn't going on a year and a half ago. I'm going to spray him. Got a little spray bottle for barking, but, uh, you know, like a year and a half ago, people were still frenzied. They were still worried. They were still tense. They were still fighting, but we're in a much different place now. It's much darker. And, uh, so I noticed that today, but a lot of stuff has been going on. And, and two, I want to say, it's like the funny thing about not looking at social media, not looking at, you know, Facebook and Instagram for, I don't know, five weeks. It hasn't made things better. People are always like, oh, you, you get off social media and everything's better. Nope. Everything, because that's a coping mechanism that people tell themselves. Like it used to be, that just, that only happens on the internet. Because that's what we heard for years about the free speech thing is, that only, that's only happening at like liberal arts colleges. That's only happening on Tumblr. That's only happening on the internet. And now welcome to your new reality globally. Welcome to your new global reality right there. But no, that was always a coping mechanism, like where people used to like when someone would be upset about a trend that was playing out online, they would always say, that's just online. You need to get off the Internet. And then now you live in a world that mirrors the Internet because people were terrified of that. that I, always, I could always sense the fear when people said that dismissively. That That's only on the Internet. You need to get off the Internet. Well, welcome to the Internet, which is the flesh now. You know, that's just how it is. And that's made more evident to me 
when I'm not on the internet all the time. I mean, I'm still on the internet. I'm still reading about what's going on in the news. So maybe, maybe I would feel different if I was totally unplugged. I don't think so, though. I mean, last night I went for a walk in my neighborhood, and uh, I, I've been running again lately, so I haven't really been going on as many strolls. But I just decided to go for a little stroll in my immediate neighborhood, and there was one other group of people out. It was, I believe it was a, a grown adult daughter. A grown adult. I believe it was a grown adult daughter and her older parents out for a walk together. And they, they were going their own direction. But then at one point, we ended up on opposite sides of the street together, or opposite sides of the street from each other. And I just overheard their conversation, and I hadn't heard what they were talking about before, but right as we, I came within earshot of them, sure enough, they were discussing vaccines. Of course, what else are people going to talk about? That's on everybody's mind all the time. And not just talking about vaccines, but the young woman, I mean, I'd say she was my age probably, but she was saying to her parents, she was like, well, and James's dad isn't vaccinated. And it was, she was clearly upset. And I assume James is her husband, maybe. Like, it had that sort of tone. Like, it sounded like she was talking about her father-in-law. But she's like, and James's dad, well, James's dad isn't vaccinated. And it, it, there was some sort of dilemma. I could tell just from this snippet. It was some sort of dilemma involving their kids. And maybe not, like, like apparently, maybe that he couldn't watch the kids. Like, maybe the father-in-law wasn't allowed to watch the kids because he's not vaccinated. It sounded like it was something like that. But then, like, before I walked away, like, before I was out of earshot, she said, hopefully he'll just die. I'm not even kidding you. And that's the sort of stuff you see online. You know, that's the sort of, again, primitive. Like, she's talking about who I pres- somebody who's close to this family, somebody who I presume to be her father-in-law. And she was talking about how he's not vaccinated, and that's causing some sort of problem for the family. And then she says, hopefully he just, he'll just die. And you see that a lot. You know, that is something you see online where if you do see what people are saying, you'll see where a lot of people are like, oh, if the stupid Republican rednecks don't get vaccinated, they're just going to die and our country is going to be better anyway. Meanwhile, there's huge numbers of minorities who aren't vaccinated, huge numbers of black people. Like somebody pointed out how in New York, like with all these these vaccine passports and everything, like 60%, I don't know if this is accurate, but apparently like whenever I read this, 60% of black people in New York aren't vaccinated. So in effect, the majority of black people are banned from establishments. <laughs> it's like, it, it's just incredible. Um, you know, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but also I've just noticed that... And it, Enough about this primitive mindset. It's there. It's callous. Um, it manifests in all of these complicated politics and social issues that are going on. But at the end of the day, it's very simple. It's very primitive. Beware. And I, and I just want to say nobody's going to win. We're at a point right now where nobody is going to win anything. All you can do is endure. All you can do is stare at the burning bush. You know, I've mentioned that, I think it was like a quadruple or a, however, or maybe even five. I think it was quadruple. I had that quadruple synchronicity a couple years ago, two or three years ago, where the burning bush was coming up continually in like a two-day period. 
where like a friend emailed me and he was mentioned the burning bush, how I was listening to something and they brought up the burning bush, how I was watching a game show and the answer to a question was the burning bush. And then I went into the Safeway grocery store restroom and they were playing a jewel song where she sings about the burning bush being on her left. And I'd never heard this song before. I had to look it up to even find out it was a jewel song. But as I walk in the in the bathroom, as all of these burning bush synchronicities are going on, there's a song singing about the burning bush. And you can understand why people lose their minds. <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can understand why schizophrenic people think that some sort of message is being communicated to them. And as I've mentioned about synchronicity, you can't try to... You can't force meaning or significance onto them. To me, it just it kind of emphasizes the greater connectivity. It doesn't just kind of, it does, as far as I'm concerned. It emphasizes the greater connectivity. But that was one where it came up so many times and in such strange ways. Because it's not like, like the friend who mentioned the burning bush to me, he doesn't read the Bible. He's not a Christian. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. He just happened to hear something about it. And brought it up to me. So it was a it was a completely random friend who brought that up. Not somebody I would ever have that conversation with. So it wasn't like I was looking in places. It wasn't like I was studying the Bible, and happened to keep coming across references to a, a biblical passage. This was just totally out in the wild. But I did look that up. Like I was like, what is? I should at least look up. Like how do people interpret the burning bush? And one of the interpretations I saw was endurance. And that stayed with me. You know, it's like, that is a good idea just to have in mind is endurance. And that's kind of how I see right now. If we can just endure this, not coronavirus, this lapse into primitivism, these abuses of power, these abuses of each other, if we can just endure this, that's I'm not looking to win, but I'm not looking to lose. I'm just looking for this sort of... I'm looking to neutrally endure this period because it is intensified. And interestingly, being away from the internet to a larger degree, I mean, I'm not, I'm not away from the internet, but you know, not seeing what everybody I know is saying all the time for the past over a month now, it's actually reinforced my view. My view on all of this is, has been reinforced that something is horribly, horribly awry. And in the last couple of weeks, the sense of dread I've had has not gone away. It's only increased. But it's not bothering me. That's the thing. It's not deeply disturbing me. And I want to make that clear. Because kind of like that story I told about when I wrote that rant for my high school newspaper where I complained about how they told us that we were going to get privileges to leave the seniors. If they passed this test, we were going to be allowed to leave for lunch. And then they didn't do it. They never gave us this pass. And so I wrote a rant about it in my high school newspaper and how this this weird hunchback redheaded janitor wrote a letter to me in response. And he was like, you sound like a very angry young man. And it's like, oh, yeah, you didn't pick up on all the humor in my article. Like just because you're, you know, a strange, I don't know, I don't need to insult this janitor from my high school half my life ago. But still, it's, it's a good example of like if somebody can't pick up on your sense of humor even if you're ranting, like if somebody listened to this show and didn't know that I was trying to be funny and they just thought that this show was me just, you know, if they just thought this was all like deep, dark emotions being puked out with no humor and no perspective, it's kind of like that. And I ran into that issue earlier this year. Like I have this friend and, you know, he would never, 
I don't think he knows about this show. He would never listen to it anyway, but I talked to him a lot during Coronavite as it was going on. I was talking to him all the time on the phone. Lives in another part of the country. Famous last words. He'll never hear this show. But no, I'm not even, there's nothing bad to say about him. He's a great guy. But one thing I noticed is that he was a big Joe Biden supporter. Joe Obama, Ben Biden supporter. And earlier this year, like whenever we'd talk, like he'd be like, how's everything going there? And I'd be like, well, things are completely crazy. Like, like the world, it just feels completely crazy. And he'd be like, it's not bothering you, is it? Like, you're not too upset by it, are you? And there was a tone to his voice, though, that communicated, like, if you're upset by what's going on, there's a problem. And I was just kind of like, huh. And I've gotten that tone from other people who, who have kind of, like, bought the Democrat talking points hook, line, and sinker. Not that he has, but I've just kind of noticed it from people who, the sort of people I know who are like, oh, my God, the adults are back in the room. Oh, the adults are back in the room. You know, that sort of person, like, if you complain now, or you point out how insane things are, they try to make it out like it's some sort of issue going on inside of you. And, and of course, it can be. You know, a lot of what you see in the world is what's going on inside of you. But it's interesting that you have to be careful even just pointing out that, you know, like me saying today, like, oh, there is a primitive... There is something dark and primitive in the air, and I feel it in the grocery store. I, I feel it everywhere right now. But you have to be careful even saying that to somebody because it's like, oh, well, uh, what's wrong with you? But anyway, you know, there's just there's something very disturbing, and it's, you know, China has recently increased their restrictions on their citizens as far as what they can do, not coronavirus shit, just general kids can only play video games for like, a, you know, three hours a week. And some of this stuff might be good. You know, I don't think it's good that young men are losing themselves in video games. But when, when the government starts telling you how often you can play them, I have a big problem with that, obviously. My big problem is just as simple as don't tell me what to do. Don't tell people what to do. But, you know, the, the Chinese government has been doing, has been ramping up. And of course it is. Like, the thing is, here's the thing about all this authoritarianism, is that when, because, I mean, every single Western country, but it goes beyond the West, most countries put some sort of authoritarian uh, guideline in place because of coronavirus. Like, you can't argue that there isn't something authoritarian going on. The argument is whether it's a good authoritarianism, whether it's for the greater good or not, which is the argument to all authoritarianism. People have, have done such poor research, poor analysis, maybe they just can't figure it out in their brains, but like authoritarian authoritarianism never comes in the form of, hey, let's just be authoritarian for the sake of it. It's always for the greater good. There's always an argument whether authoritarianism is for the greater good. And because so many countries have imp imposed authoritarian measures, one of them, if not more than one, was bound to overstep their bounds. Bound to overstep their bounds. And we're seeing that with Australia right now. Australia right now, as far as the West is concerned, is winning that race. And it gets worse and worse there. I don't want this to be just some... 
This is an audio blog talking about how much Australia's COVID measures suck. A lot of people are pointing it out, but you know, it just gets worse and worse. I gave some examples last week that I saw. I see more examples. They arrested a father in the woods at a park with his daughter because they weren't wearing masks in the outside around no people. But then you can, this is the stuff that's, that's one thing, but the stuff that's incredibly infuriating is a police department in Sydney who, these are the people who have been cracking down. They've been arresting people simply for going outside of their houses when they're not supposed to, not wearing masks in public places, in a, in outdoor public places. But it came out that the, this Sydney police department had their own LGBT awareness party in their headquarters and pictures came out and it was a get together. Yeah. Like they were wearing masks and everything, but right now get togethers aren't allowed. And it, it's a flashback to what was going on in the U S where all of these articles came out, justifying the BLM riots and protests by saying like, these aren't spreader events. It's actually totally safe to gather in large groups, large chaotic groups where people have their masks off, where they're all up in each other's business, sometimes physically touching and assaulting each other. That's totally fine because the cause is a good one. We saw where that was part of, you know, one of the most blatant and disgusting propaganda campaigns I've ever seen in my life. The idea that some protests, some gatherings are okay because the cause is okay. Shouldn't that just be obvious to you what they're doing? But then we're seeing that now with the Sydney Police Department thing where it's okay for the police department who are... It couldn't be a better group because it's the very people who are cracking down on everybody. But the fact that they think it's suitable to have an LGBT awareness party. And it, I saw a photograph from it. It looked like a cult ritual. It was these people sitting at a table with like the rainbow and all the, all the symbolism all around. It might as well have been Masonic. You might as well have told me that this was some sort of Masonic meeting. And it might as well be. And I mean, who needs to know, like, LGBT awareness, okay. I had never heard of them. The police department has to have their own weird little party for it. During a time where they're making sure nobody is allowed to have any kind of get-together, where fathers are being arrested for walking their daughters through parks without masks, you know. Something is wrong. Something is horribly wrong. And the idea that all of these countries would start increasing their authoritarianism to handle COVID, you know, just as a matter of probability, one or more of them was going to take it too far. One or more of them was going to say, hey, we need to keep these in place. This is a good way to control people. You know, that's that was the slippery slope that people were arguing about is that it's not just that the government has a very difficult time rolling things back once they've implemented them. And they like holding on to the power they've gained. It's just a matter of probability that at least one country, if not all of them, if you know, if not more of them, I mean, China's using this as an excuse to crack down further on their people. But we're seeing it in the West, too. And that's more of my concern, because we expect it from China. You know, we expect it from China, but increasingly we are living in a society where we expect it from our own government. And they've always done it in some ways, but we're seeing it's so blatant now.
but that was what I was thinking about, like the argument that like, oh, you know, when you impose authoritarian measures, and we have to be able to agree that they're authoritarian. You know, because there's a lot of people who would not agree that COVID measures are authoritarian, but by their very definition, they are. An authority is forcing us to do something. Something quite drastic, something quite different from the life that we've been used, that we're used to living. So it's authoritarian by definition, but the argument is not about whether it's authoritarian or not. If somebody's having an argument about whether or not it's authoritarian, that's a lost argument because somebody is completely delusional. The argument is whether it's necessary or not, which is the central argument to authoritarianism. It is necessary to do this, and a certain number of people agree, a certain number of people don't. That's the endless debate, that is the endless fight when it comes to authoritarian measures. So I, I'm, I'll just dismiss someone outright if they try to say that what's going on is not authoritarian. I will listen to them if they try to make the argument that it's somehow necessary. Because unfortunately, society itself, government itself, depends on that. But I want to go back to that girl in my neighborhood, the young woman. I mean, I guess she's probably my age. I, she was old enough to have children talking about how her father-in-law was unvaccinated and how it was causing problems and how she hoped he would just die. I heard this is just a snippet. And like, what's interesting, too, is she knew that I was within earshot. Like, they saw me walking, but she had no reservation having that conversation out in the open where a neighbor could hear it. I know, exa- I know exactly which house they live in. And it's like, I know which house that I want nothing to do with. Because that's the house where they want unvaccinated people to die. <laughs> you know, at least she does. She wants her own father-in-law to die. And it's not that she necessarily means it. But, you know, the more that that gets repeated, the more that that narrative takes hold, and we're seeing mass propaganda that pushes that, she's probably influenced by it. I don't want to make any assumptions, but... You know, it's just we're going to see more and more of that as this vaccine discussion. I've already mentioned on this show, a friend of mine, you know, he, he and his girlfriend broke up because of the vaccination. Meanwhile, my friend, you know, I mentioned that one of my friends has COVID right now. He's recording music. <laughs> he, he's, he's sending me songs that he's recorded. And like even one of them, he, he did a country song where he's singing and he sounds great. And, you know, I'm not going to use that, though. The thing is, though, I'm not going to use that to say, oh, look, why can't everybody just do that? Everybody with COVID didn't, you know, you're so brainwashed that you don't realize that you can just sing country music and record music while you have it. Obviously, it's different for everybody. My friend is very lean. You know, he's in good shape. You know, he's, he's my age and he's thin, you know, so it's like he doesn't have other health issues, at least not the ones typically associated with COVID fatalities. But it was just so funny to me because, like, I I asked him how he was doing, and he sends me him playing guitar, him recording electronic music, him singing, and he sounds great. Honestly, everybody should get COVID and and record country music. Country Caroni. This is Caroni country. (laughs) Uh. But, you know, it's it's funny, too, because a lot of... But, no, I wouldn't use that, though. I mean, that's the thing, though, because people want to... That's the thing. is like when someone has, like, a, a tolerable or even 
you know, even even just a completely fine experience with COVID, it's like you don't want to turn around and use that that anecdote as evidence for anything. I'm not out to prove anything. I just think it's funny, though, that with all the, the fear of coronavi, that somebody I know is out there recording music with it. But it, it seems like a lot of things that I've been talking about lately have been coming up just in the last couple of days. You know, there's a big thing about dogs in Afghanistan. And I, I questioned myself on that when I brought it up a year ago, when I brought up the idea that dogs play this political role or animals, people politicize animals. It was something I had never thought about before. It was something I had never acknowledged. And I kind of questioned whether I was going off the deep end because it was inspired by the video of BLM protesters throwing rocks at a dog it was it was a light bulb moment because i was like oh yeah a lot of those people probably consider themselves animal lovers but when politics are involved they're all too willing to throw rocks at an animal simply because it belongs to their enemy and having read about war enough i know that that takes place in war throughout history so it was kind of a light bulb moment to me and then, you know, I talked about Hitler and his dog and everything and about how Hitler had his dog killed because the Soviets were coming. They had, they had all the dogs in the bunkers who were all beloved. You know, these were beloved animals and they killed all of them. And, you know, I mentioned how Hitler, how it kind of brought to mind the way that a Viking lord would be buried with his own dog. How in Scandinavian history, when a lord would die, they would bury him with his servants. They would kill his servants, his slaves, but they would also kill his his dog and bury his dog with them. And I didn't mention this in the episode, but I should have. I should have, which is that when the Allies found Hitler and Eva Braun's bodies, they were with their dogs, which brought to mind, and they were in a crater, but they couldn't have been killed in that. I mean, we know they weren't killed in that crater because they committed suicide. But somebody placed them in that crater. Like one of the Germans placed them in that crater. Like they couldn't have just ended up in that crater. And that is that Viking burial to a T. The idea that the master has died. He's buried with his wife and his dogs. And so they found Hitler and his dogs in a crater. Hitler, Ava, and their dogs. Very interesting. But the idea that Hitler killed his dogs, like, oh my God, how could he kill his dogs? Well, he didn't want to leave them to the Soviets. He didn't want to leave them to the Allies. And that's sort of what's going on in Afghanistan now, where apparently this large number of dogs that had been used by the American military were just abandoned. They didn't bring them with them. And I'll, I'll just say straight up, I would rather have those dogs brought here than refugees. I don't think refugees' lives are any more valuable or less valuable, just to make that clear, than those dogs. And in particular, I think those, those dogs deserve to come back here more than anybody else. Because they have no choice. These dogs were used and trained for a specific purpose, and we just abandoned them. You know, this isn't even so much a, uh, my opinion isn't even really rooted in any kind of view I have on refugees or immigration or anything like that in general. I feel that those dogs should have been a higher priority than refugees. Because I don't place human life above animal life. 
Obviously, I eat meat. You could point out all kinds of hypocrisies in this viewpoint. But on a base level, I don't think that human life is inherently more valuable than animal life. And one of the big things is that the Taliban apparently doesn't believe that humans should cohabitate with dogs. And there are great concerns that the Taliban is going to treat these dogs inhumanely or kill them. And so it again goes back to the Hitler dilemma, where you can say like, oh, Hitler's such a bad guy. He he had all the dogs killed before he killed himself. Well, would you leave your dogs to be dealt with by your enemies? And that's exactly what we just did, which just illustrates the hypocrisy, though, of Joe Obama bin Biden's campaign using his dog as this PR stunt. It's like this president who used his dog as a PR stunt is responsible for a huge number of dogs being left behind in a place where they could starve, be treated inhumanely, tortured, they could be killed. You know, it's it's. So it just shows to me, though, that like my and then and then what's interesting, too, is I'm seeing where conservatives are using that conservatives are using the dog issue to make some kind of gross political points. And even though I I kind of agree, it's exactly what I said about all this, where it's like when you introduce dogs into politics, which sounds absurd to saying that, but when you introduce dogs into politics People start arguing over dogs and they start using them as leverage. And, you know, recently it came out that like Governor Cuomo had used it. He had apparently adopted a dog and he used it as a PR stunt. And now that he's removed from office, he abandoned the dog like he gave up the dog. I'm sure somebody adopted it. I'm sure it has a nice home. You know, they didn't ship uh, Cuomo's dog to the Taliban or anything, but still just, it's that, it's just exactly that it's dogs being used for politics. Cuomo obviously didn't want a dog. I did say recently that I think Joe Obama bin Biden does love dogs because he's so handsy. He is a dog before he was too old to function. Joe Obama bin, Joe mama, Joe Obama bin Biden was pretty much a dog. So I believe Joe Obama bin Biden likes dogs. And here I am. I'm, I'm just playing the exact game that I'm criticizing, but welcome to life. But with Cuomo, it's pretty clear he didn't like dogs. And he abandoned his dog as, as soon as it was politically convenient. And for, for that matter, like, I don't even understand why Italians have dogs. Like, Italians aren't the kind of people. I'm kidding. Italians are pretty much animals themselves. What do they need dogs for? I'm kidding, okay? Oh my god. Um but uh it's just it's I it, I don't know. It it makes me sick. But there's a part of me that's glad that my feelings on this have been confirmed. The way that dogs and animals, but dogs in particular are seen as this extension of politicians. They're seen as an extension of the politics that are playing out. And we're seeing that with Afghanistan right now. And to be honest, I've been really upset about it. I have been really upset about just what's been in the news about these dogs. Because that's just, I don't know, because it's, it's people then start talking about like, because you'll see people make the point where it's like, where it's like equating human life with dog life and like what our priorities should be. And it's like those dogs to me are the most innocent lives of all. 
and they're completely at the mercy of humans, which I think is why it bothers me so deeply. But enough about that. I don't want this to be a bummer show where I just talk about horrible things happening to animals. I really don't want that to be. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want this to be that kind of show. But another thing that came up was a guy. I believe he's a journalist. He made some kind of statement about how basically he's he's getting revenge for being bullied by jocks and rednecks as a kid and. That just plays into what I always talk about, which is the and, and but I've seen some responses to that where people are like, oh, yeah, this just shows you that so many of these types of people still see their lives decades later as an extension of what happened to them when they were in high school. But my take on that is sometimes it didn't even happen to them. I don't trust somebody when they say they were bullied in high school. I don't trust somebody when they say that they were a nerd who was treated poorly by jocks or rednecks. That narrative has been hammered home so heavily. Every single movie about teenagers for the last 40 years is about the nerd underdog, the artist, you know, either getting revenge or just surviving bullying from jocks. And I know that jocks bully people. Of course they do. That's a real thing. It's a, the stereotype is real, but it's not necessarily as prevalent as people make it out to be. And when people see that in the media, when they see that in entertainment over and over again, they start to believe that's how it really is, and they revise their own history. They look back and they're like, oh, there was one time where, oh yeah, there was that time where a jock said to me, get out of the way, nerd. Not that anybody actually talks like that. But, you know, there was one time where a jock was mean to me. And when someone has that memory, that becomes a jock was mean to me. And then the next time it comes up in their brain, it's jocks were mean to me. And then it just becomes their reality where they they were a jock was mean to them once, maybe circumstantially. But now they look back at their life and they were bullied, too. I was bullied, too. And so I don't think that gets enough attention that this has been manufactured. It's been a narrative in many stories about growing up. Before I was even born, this this was the narrative. And that narrative was based on a certain reality, but it wasn't the whole reality. And so, you know, I think people are giving these guys too much credit when they say, oh, because people are pointing out, they're like, oh, it just shows you that so many of these people can't get over what happened to them when they were young and they're just out to retaliate and get revenge. And like somebody pointed out, like this guy, even his political viewpoints are probably informed by that dynamic. But I was like, you're trusting him too much. You're trusting that he was actually bullied. Whereas I see, I've known people who have manufactured this story. And it plays in with the underdog and adversity story. Where in our climate today, in our culture today... You have to have a story of adversity. You have to present yourself as the underdog in order for people to like you. I see it during football season where when they talk about a player, if there's a really good player, the announcers feel the need to give him some kind of manufactured backstory. And it could be real. You know, it could be a real story. Like every once in a while they'll mention like, oh, this running back. You know, there was, there was a period during his childhood where he, he and his mom were living in their car. 
But the fact that they feel the need to say that, and, but they will exaggerate and manufacture it too. They'll be like, oh yeah, you know, when he, when he was 12 years old, his aunt had breast cancer and beat it. But that's still, a, you know, they'll, they'll bring up obscure information just to give some guy any kind of underdog, any kind of adversity backstory. And so people themselves take that on. I mean, I've talked about it as the American Idol effect, where you could always tell who is going to get a push on American Idol, who is going to be popular on American Idol, because they'll take a moment to do that vignette where they talk about how that person's a single mother with their eye, one of their eyeballs just doesn't stay in their head, so it falls out. And so they have to keep, they have to use this special glue to keep their eyeball in their head. But they have to do that while being a single parent and pursuing their dream to be a singer. You know, how every single person who is given a push on American Idol has to have an underdog story, an adversity story, and that is played out throughout, throughout our entire culture. I know somebody who I recently saw, and I, I hate to even point this out, but it's just part of it. It's not just something you see in the media in, in entertainment, but somebody I know was trying to milk something that... Somebody I know very well was trying to milk something to promote something of theirs. And I was just like, oh, God, you have the disease. You have that disease. You know? Like, they were they were referencing something that... I'll just say it. You know, I don't care. They, they said that they had a speech impediment that they've, like, they had to overcome... And I've been talking about speech impediments on here, and I'm very sensitive to speech impediments. Like, I, I've, I was talking recently about childhood friends of mine who had speech impediments and how they kind of fascinated me. This is a person I know extremely well. If they had a speech impediment, it was very, very early in life, and I never remember it for a second. And I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time with this person, and I'm just like, huh. Either it's amazing that you've been fighting this this whole time and I just simply was never aware of it, or you're milking some sort of adversity story. And I'm just like, uh, you know, like that's the climate we're in. Like I've mentioned, you know, like being in a single parent household. I hope that I don't come across like I I'm milking that because a single parent household for me was much different than that for other people. Like my dad paid alimony, you know, he paid child support. I had a very comfortable life. My mom was around, you know, so at no point, like while there are certain dimensions to your experience living in a single parent household, when I say that at no point am I trying to be like, oh, I'm just an underdog. I'm an underdog. No, I had plenty of opportunity. Coming from a single parent household didn't hold me back at all. It colored my experience, but it didn't hold me back from anything. It didn't. It was not a story of adversity in any way. But people will do that. It's almost like a res, like on a job resume, how you're encouraged to exaggerate, or even kind of manufacture things. You're kind of you spin things. At the very least, on when you're doing a job interview or, or making a resume, you learn how to spin it, where you take something that might be true from a certain perspective, but you spin it in such a way that it'll sound very favorable. It's a classic job interview resume technique. But you can see where people do that with their own lives. 
where it's like I could take being from a single parent household and spin that or provide no context that explains that, oh, it was actually a very comfortable childhood. It was not a struggle for any of us. But I could spin it. If I really wanted to, I could spin it. And people would just have to accept it. Because the problem is you can't challenge anybody on, on any of this. And I, and I mean, it kind of goes back to you know a point I've made before too, where you know if you're walking down the street, like if I'm walking down the street and like, let's say I pass somebody who... who like looks let's let's say i pass some let's say i pass a black person and i smile and i say hi and they say nothing back my gut reaction might be oh they didn't say hi back cuz i'm a white man they didn't say hi back cuz i'm a white man oh my god and then that and then I, the next time that thought comes to mind i end up thinking black people don't say hi back to white people Black people are rude to white people. Like, it becomes something other than what it is. Like that bullying story, where it's like, if a jock was mean to you once, and you're seeing in entertainment and the media all these stories about bullying and jocks versus nerds, you might look back on that one memory, or you might just remember the fumes of it, and then you're like, yeah, I was bullied by jocks too. Even though it was a one-off. You know, and I know from talking to women and stuff, I know that women sometimes kind of jump to this conclusion where a good example is the whole like girl boss thing where there's women who get promoted to supervisory or managerial positions and claim that men don't respect them. They don't they don't respect when they are assertive. And they call it bossy or even bitchy. But what they don't realize, and I mean, maybe that does happen. There is a certain sort of guy who is a misogynist. There is a certain sort of man who doesn't believe women should have authority. I've had great experiences with women bosses. I just heard from my old boss the other day. She contacted me just to see how things were going. She was my immediate supervisor for many years. And, you know, I... It was great to hear from her. Like, I respected her as my boss. You know, it's like I had no issues whatsoever but there's a certain sort of woman who who goes into a boss position and if a, if there's any issue with a man there's this tendency to assume oh he has a problem with me as a woman being his supervisor he doesn't like me being authoritative he doesn't like me telling him what to do and what's lost in that like unless you have concrete evidence that that's the reason like unless the guy actually says something specific that indicates he doesn't respect women in positions of authority, you can't necessarily assume that it's because you're a woman. And here's what I'll say about that, because I have had female bosses before where they were trying way too hard to be that sort of girl boss. Like they felt like they needed to act that way in order to have respect or authority in their position. But here's the thing they don't understand is that if a guy were to ask that way, if a guy were to act that way, people wouldn't respect that either. There are some fucking insecure, nasty male supervisors 
who act like girl bosses too, or just let's get away from the term girl boss and, and just say like bad leaders who think that just flexing their authority is enough to get respect. And it's not true. And men talk about those guys the same way they're going to talk about a woman who thinks she has to be a girl boss. The sort of male leaders that men really respect, who I really respect, have a certain calmness. They have a certain confidence. They aren't trying to prove anything. And the same goes for my experiences with female bosses. When they're not trying to prove to me that they're my boss or they're a good boss. When they just make the right decisions. They're not preoccupied with their role. They're trying to carry out their duties effectively. But a woman who experiences some kind of pushback or doesn't earn the respect of her male employees, if she's trying to flex that girl boss attitude, well, guess what? A man would do the exact same thing and they would hate him for that too. It has nothing to do with your gender. It has to do with your freaking attitude. But that, is, that also doesn't change the fact that there are men who are just downright misogynistic, who on principle refuse to listen to a lady. That exists too. But your anecdote isn't evidence of that. Because, I mean, I've noticed this phenomenon, like I've mentioned on here before, that guys in cars are a problem. Men do catcall women. I've witnessed it enough times. Men do catcall women. They do harass women from their cars. They also harass men, but with men, they, they scream at you. It's a guttural, unintelligible scream. You're lucky if they even call you a fag or something. You know, you're lucky if somebody even just calls you an insult. Normally, it's far more primitive. It's, it's a guttural scream. It's insane how many people do it, too. And this is my entire life. I walk a lot. I walk a lot. I walk a lot. I do. I walk a lot. And as a result, I feel like I experience this more than the average person because I'm out there. Men will give you this just guttural scream. And that's all a fact to me. Like those two points are a fact. Men catcall and harass women from their cars and they scream at men from their cars, especially if it's a group of men. And sometimes there's not even a word being screamed. I wish they'd insult me sometimes because it's actually scarier that they just feel the need to let out some sort of war cry. And it's not even intimidating. Sometimes it's high pitched. It's weird. But it's enough of, of a phenomenon I've noticed among different generations of men that there is a need when they see a man out on the street to scream at him. But something I've just become aware of more recently that I've started to kind of put the pieces together on is that, and this is something that a man will do by himself if he's in a car, but he'll also do it when he's with a group of guys. But if a man sees you walking as another man, especially if you have any confidence to you, like if you look masculine, and this is all just pure conjecture. There's no, this is pure anecdotal evidence. There's, there's no even evidence. It's just, this is my own perception. I've noticed that men floor it or they rev their engine as they drive by. I've noticed that if I'm walking down a street 
and there's an insecure guy in a car, especially if he has a hot rod or a truck, that he'll be driving somewhat normally. Because I can see, I'm so, I'm so hyper-vigilant. I'm aware of every single car. I'm aware of every single person. I'm looking around. I'm like a robot. I'm, I'm just, I'm scanning my environment and trying to do so without communicating that I'm doing that. But I'll be walking down the street and I've noticed that a guy in a car who's otherwise driving normally will see me and as he passes me, he'll either rev his engine or like floor it. Like where he'll just suddenly just go like, he'll go from, you know, 25 miles an hour to like 60 miles an hour on a residential street. And it always seems to happen when they see me. And I don't mean to like stroke my own ego here, but I've noticed, I think the reason why I'm just now kind of becoming aware of this is because it coincides with me getting in better shape. And like at this point in my life, I just wear gym shorts and a t-shirt around. I just look like a bro, like a weird bro wandering around. And I have noticed that like as I've become more fit and more noticeably fit, like I, I spend a lot of time working out. So it's just it's just a fact that, you know, my body has changed in the last number of years. Not like I'm some bodybuilder, not like somebody sees me and is like, oh, my God, is that a superhero? It's just something I've noticed that like as I've gotten in better shape. I've noticed more and more of this aggression from drivers where they will either rev their engine or hit the gas. And my theory is that they see a confident male walking down the street. And something about that brings out that inner competitor, that rivalry that we all feel with other men, that call to war. And because they can't kill me, because they can't fight me, they do what the only thing they can do, which is drive aggressively, make a loud noise with their car, rev their engine, you know, but I would never be able to prove that. And I'm extremely self-conscious talking about that. Oh, guys can't handle seeing a guy in good shape walking down the street. Here I am like congratulating myself like on, you know, this is just a, a sick line of thought probably, but it's something I've noticed. And I would never be able to prove it, though. And I would never claim it's a fact. I would say it is a fact that men harass women and men scream at other men. But this whole thing about guys revving their engines or hitting the gas, there's no way that I could prove this. It's just a sense that I've gotten, and it's only been recently that I've become fully aware of it, where it's like they see a certain type of man out walking And they think that they have to compete. But I'm I'm very careful not to retcon my own life. I'm very careful not to revise my own life. Because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to look back at your childhood in particular and be like, oh yeah, you know what? One time a football player was mean to me. And then the next time you have that thought, you're thinking, football players were mean to me. And you carry that with you. So something to think about. Those different ways in which 
You know, I mean, I even noticed this as, as a researcher. To me, it's the same sort of mental phenomenon that goes on as a researcher where I'll find something out that isn't confirmed. Like, let's stick with the mafia, like a subject that I've spent a lot of time researching. I'll find a certain piece of information that suggests something. And I'll go, you know what? This little piece of information suggests this. The next time that I think about it or talk about it, it's very easy for me to state it as a fact. While, while when I initially found it, I made it clear to myself in my notes that this is just speculation. But when I revisit that speculation, my brain just naturally, because it's familiar to me, because the story is already familiar to me, where it's like, I've thought about this before, the second time I think about it, it's very easy for it to become reinforced and for me to start thinking about it as a fact. When I go, oh, wait, no, that was speculative to begin with. And just because that speculation has been repeated in my mind enough to where I now am comfortable with it, doesn't make it any more factual. And that happens a lot with anecdotal experience. You know, you can see where that plays a role in racism and sexism. Not that there isn't bigotry. Not that there isn't discrimination. Not that there isn't mistreatment. But it's very difficult to know what the truth is from anecdote alone. Especially when anecdotes kind of take on a life of their own the more that you think about them. And you can even see where like some of these out of control misogynists end up thinking that way too because they've had like one bad experience with a girl that becomes amplified. Suddenly she becomes all women. So you can see where a lot of our problems come from this way of thinking. You know, you had one bad experience with a certain type of person. And there are many times where, where that is part of a pattern. That can be part of a pattern. But we exist in this mindset where, and this is probably a primitive mindset as far as I'm concerned, where because something can be part of a pattern, we assume it is. Because there is a pattern of somebody discriminating against you, or, or rather, because there's the possibility that this is a pattern, and it's a pattern that other people have pointed out, it must mean that your single experience is part of a pattern too. And that's how I feel when people talk about like jocks and rednecks. You know, because my experience with that was that jocks were in-your-face assholes. There's a reason why that stereotype exists. You know, I'm not trying to do my own retcon and, and say that, oh, jocks, perfect gentlemen. Jocks are perfect gentlemen all the time. Some of them are. But what I found, like being somebody who played sports and played football and likes football, but who was also into music and art, and I had nerdy friends, too. I had friends who would, would have considered themselves gamers even back then. Guys who pretty much dedicated most of their time to video games. I found that everybody was mean. 
I found that jocks were more in your face and aggressive about it. And I think that has a lot to do with confidence because they're physically, you know, more imposing because they're typically more popular. Although that's a whole other subject, dissecting what popularity actually is. I won't go there today. I know sometimes I say I'm not going to go there and then I'll just dive into it for an hour. I'm truly not going to go into popularity today. But with like the jock sort of archetype, stereotype, whatever you want to call it, you know, I, I think that they are confident enough to where they feel that they can be mean openly when they want to be mean. I found that nerds and artists, it's more backbiting. They're just as mean. Like my friends who were artists or nerds or they were into alternative stuff, like they were just as mean. But it tended to be more backbiting because they, were, they weren't confident in their ability to be physically imposing but they would, you know, they got sucked way more into gossip. There was a lot of backbiting is how I'd put it. And so I think that need is there in all people. I think everybody has a need, especially growing up, to test the boundaries. And that's what I always say about bullying. We shouldn't try to stop bullying because it has a function. We need to teach people what the boundaries are. What does it mean to go too far? And I mean, that's the, that's the question of authoritarianism, you know, is what does it mean to go too far? Because even though the word authoritarianism is rightfully bad, like even though that term has a poor reputation for a reason, we, we have to have it. We have to have a certain amount of authoritarianism. Existing in a society, existing under a government, requires a certain amount of submission to a higher authority. And even if we you know, devolved into some sort of state of anarchism, where people were truly governing themselves we'd quickly realize that authoritarianism is right around the corner. Quicker, you know, more quick, and it it appears more quickly than people can possibly imagine. So a certain amount of authoritarianism, I would say, is necessary for functioning in a society. Just like bullying. Bullying is necessary. But we need to instead of talking about these things as if they're black and white, where we can either have authoritarianism or not have authoritarianism or allow bullying or not allow bullying, we should be looking at what the boundaries should be. We should be looking at what the limitations are on that. What is too far? What what does it mean for a government to become too authoritarianism or too authoritarian? Because they're already authoritarian. The second you establish a government, it's by its very nature authoritarian. But what is too authoritarian? That's the question. Not whether it's authoritarian or not. It's what is too far. Same with bullying. People simply coexisting in a community, in a group, especially if there's any element of competition, which there always is, Bullying will happen one way or another. Bullying will happen. It doesn't matter what you call it. 
You can call it political activism, which is what we see today. There's tons of bullies out there who claim that they're not bullying anybody. They're just doing what's politically correct. But the result is bullying. The behavior is exactly the same. The process is, is exactly the same. It's no different than, oh, how do you translate the word bullying into Estonian? Well, the language doesn't matter. The word doesn't matter. The behavior, the action is what matters. So we're not going to get rid of bullying. And because of that, we should instead look at what can we allow? What is a tolerable amount of bullying? What is a tolerable amount of authoritarianism? Those are the questions I'm asking, but those aren't the questions being debated. And you know, There's an increasing scrutiny on just being healthy, and I don't think that comes from a place of persecution. You can actually see it. You know, recently these articles came out where they're saying that bodybuilders are basically bodybuilders and anybody who prioritizes fitness has body dysmorphia, eating disorders. Basically, it's a problem if you prioritize your health and fitness. And there have also been some articles that have been spinning physical fitness as a right-wing phenomenon, unsurprisingly, because the left has kind of dug in on the idea that its its whole platform is based on like body shaming and, and claiming that being fat is healthy. I, I have a friend who's overweight who was r rallying about this for years. You know, she was saying how, I don't know, like emphasize, like, like, like talking about these classes where like they're focused on fat fitness and how it proves that like when you're fat, you can be fit. And I'm like, okay, let's just run. Let's go for a run. I didn't say this, but it's like, Basically, the idea, like, I think we can accept fatness. We can not be mean to people for being fat. But once you start saying that fatness is a form of fitness or that you can be a fit fat person, yeah, a fat person can be athletic. A fat person can still do things. But I mean, up to a certain point. And so don't try, don't start telling me that fatness is fitness. We can accept fatness, we can accept people who are overweight and not make them feel bad for it, at least not more than is just natural to being that way. Because I mean, like I said before, the hardest part about when I was fat was just the fact that like simply a description of you is an insult. Like somebody simply describing you is an insult, even if they don't mean it that way. Because, like, you end up not being able to describe someone at all. Like, if someone is fat and you need to give them a physical description or somebody needs to physically describe you, which sometimes we have to do. Sometimes we have to physically describe each other. It's part of this whole life thing. But to physically describe a heavy person, there's not really a tactful way to do it. And I don't think that's just because those people have been demonized. It's just how it is. And so you end up fearing an accurate description of yourself when you're a fat person. And 
someone could look at me like with these articles saying that like, oh, fitness is a gateway to right wing politics. They've actually said this. And this isn't that marginal of an idea either. This has been out there. This is in the media. But the idea that fitness, and even if that was true, what would that tell you? (laughs) What would it tell you if getting in shape makes you think more conservatively? Shouldn't that tell you something in and of itself? But anyway, what's interesting is just the fact that like there has been this kind of, like it's not just enough to accept people of any size. We also have to smear fitness. Well, we also have to smear bodybuilders. And that's kind of what this article was. It wasn't just showing concern. You could tell it wasn't coming from a place of concern. It was trying to, to categorize fit people as mentally unsound by saying they have body dysmorphia. They have eating disorders. Some of them do. Some people who are into fitness have body dysmorphia and eating disorders. But the way this article presented it was that simply managing your calories, simply sticking to a strict diet, devoting time, a significant amount of your free time to working out, that this is all part of a pathological pattern of behavior. So when people joke about how they want us fat and stupid, they're doing a good job, you know, (laughs) they're doing a good job like making those points. And then you see where this creeps into conversation. I was reading about this ultra marathon runner recently. Like it was after I read about this article and it was unrelated. I was reading about this ultra marathon runner who runs insane. He runs for insane times and distances like something like even when I was running all the time, I could never even fathom doing what this guy does. I would never want to. But it's impressive to me that this guy does it. It's impressive to me that the human body can do this at all. And this guy, he's, he's kind of like a motivational speaker, too, of course. You know, if you're running ultra marathons, like, you deserve to be a motivational speaker. But sure enough, people are fighting about that. And I was reading, like, some of these arguments where, like, there's nothing to argue about, first of all. Like, what is there to argue about? This guy is an ultra marathon runner. Either you're interested in that, either you think it's cool or you don't. It's his body and his choice to do it. But I was I was reading these arguments people were making where they were like, he clearly has body dysmorphia. Ding, 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 ding. Somebody said that. They said, he clearly has body dysmorphia. And I was like, huh, I wonder where you got that idea. Very interesting that there are articles in the news right now, articles in the media saying that Fit people have body dysmorphia. It's just, it's the poison of our mental health industry, which is designed to help people, but it's actually given people all of these new terms and ideas that they don't even fully understand, but it's given people all these new terms and ideas they can now use against people, even when they have no business using them. Let's say this ultra marathon runner does have body dysmorphia, because I think we all do. We are all souls trapped in a body, and it's very difficult to see our body the way it actually is, and the way it actually is is relative to everything else. 
So everybody has body dysmorphia. Nobody sees themselves as they really are. But the fact that like there there are recent articles and you can you you can always sense when it's like a push. It always feels conspiratorial because all of a sudden you see it everywhere. All of a sudden They've escalated the conversation from we need to accept people of all body types and not shame people to let's shame fit people because they make us feel bad. They're too confident. But you know what? It's, it's probably all coming from a place of insecurity. They have body dysmorphia. They have eating disorders. Oh, you know what? He eats a very specific amount of protein with every meal, and he doesn't gorge himself on carbs. That's an eating disorder. Anytime you limit your pleasure, it's an eating disorder. That's the logic they're using. And uh, that's interesting to me that we're seeing that. And it's like they're making our arguments for us. Because I, I didn't really full, you know, I didn't buy into the idea that like, oh, they want us to be fat and diabetic and stupid. And it, what's interesting is there's been a shift because that used to be how people made fun of rednecks and Republicans. Like when I was growing up, the left, like progressives were often health conscious. They were very physically active. They spent a lot of time outdoors. They weren't necessarily gym rats, gym rats, but they tended to eat health food. They didn't eat garbage. Like I grew up, my sister is one, you know, my sister was like this, her and her friends, they were very conscious of what they ate. And not that her, and she wasn't this way. Like, my sister was never this way. But there was kind of an element of the the healthy, progressive narrative that said that, oh, yeah, these other people, it's, it's the stupid George W. Bush supporters who eat Big Macs and fries and drink corn syrup coli. Coli? Corn syrup Coca-Coli. You know, there was this idea that it's, it's those people who want every it's 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 the it's the stupid ignorant subhuman Walmart shoppers that are fat and that just shows how stupid they are and it's interesting though that that conversation has shifted to where now it's the progressives who are saying eat whatever you want get big and fat get fat cuz you know what being fat is actually fit i don't you know and i have no problem with people being fat be fat be fat. I've got no issue whatsoever. But it's been interesting to see that kind of change hands to where it used to be progressives who shamed rednecks for being Walmart, fat Walmart shoppers. But now we're seeing where it's the progressives who are like, yeah, you know what? Uh, Let's be just like them. Let's look like Walmart shoppers, except our hair is going to be dyed. And we're going to have a bunch of random tattoos, stick and poke tattoos. So it's interesting to see that shift. But then the shift continues, which is like, yeah, and people who are fit are the ones who are mentally and physically unhealthy. It's guys who lift weights and run. 
and pay close attention to what they're eating. And, you know, I, I run the risk of sounding like I'm like I have some persecution complex and all this. I don't because the reality is nobody can stop you because seriously, if it did reach a point where people were like, in order to cure you of your body dysmorphia, you can no longer lift weights or run or eat healthy. Well, a lot of people are going to die. Like, if you stopped fit people from being able to be fit, not, I mean, at this point, I wouldn't even be surprised. But if you were to try to stop that, coronavi, they closed the gyms. It's all part of the conspiracy. But no, if they did try to do that, it's like, you'd have a lot of people violently responding. You'd have a lot of people respond to that with violence. And guess what? When it comes to violence, the physically fit people are the ones you got to worry about. Because, I mean, that's what it comes down to, too. It's like saying that fitness, that fatness is fitness, that you can be just as physically fit at a certain weight as you would when you're traditionally fit. It's just, I mean, let's, let's have fights. You know, we shouldn't, though. I don't believe in that. We shouldn't actually have fights. But I'm just saying, if you really want to know, if you really want to know how it all works out, stage fights and see who wins. Because as, as I'm not even a fan of boxing or MMA. I don't even like that stuff. But you continually hear again and again that it's conditioning. It's endurance. There we go. There's that word, endure. You know, yeah, sometimes there's a knockout. Sometimes in boxing, somebody gets a knockout, but usually the winner is the person with the better endurance. I know enough to know that Floyd, Floyd Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather, I know that his whole thing was endurance. The reason why he was such a a successful boxer is not because he was so strong, not because he was the knockout king. He wasn't Mike Tyson, but he had incredible endurance incredible stamina so that's a big factor you can never you know that and that's you know when they train soldiers that's a point of emphasis and you can even just see from the way soldiers look throughout history physical fitness is mandatory but it was really interesting though to like read that article which it's like yeah, just reading it in an article, somebody could make the argument that's like, well, that's just some like fringe thinker trying to smear physical fitness as some sort of negative pathology. But then when you actually see people using those arguments right after that, like why were people even arguing about this ultra marathon runner? What was there to argue about? There were people having arguments and like, you know, I'm, I'm making it a point to look and see what's in the comments. I'm occasionally looking at the comments right now. And what blows my mind is that there's even an argument to be had. But the there were people passionately, like insulting each other even. There were people like throwing ad hominem at each other. And all they were arguing about was whether this guy should run ultra marathons or not. And somebody was like, well, he clearly has body dysmorphia and a, an inferiority complex. Otherwise, he'd never feel the need to do this. And he shouldn't be doing it because it's bad for your body. People think they can tell other people what to do or that they should even have an opinion on what other people should do. 
Because that's the slippery slope. It's like we've gotten so comfortable in the last year and a half with the idea of telling people what they should do physically. That it starts to extend to everything else, and we're prone to doing that anyway. But just this argument fascinated me because it was like there were... I'm not even talking about one or two people. I'm talking about like two dozen people arguing about this ultra marathon runner because everything is an argument now. Everything. Every single thing is an argument. And they were arguing about whether or not like running ultra marathons is good for you. And like somebody said, they were like, he even says it's not good for you. He even says that the recovery time is insane that his body is completely ruined for like two straight weeks afterward. He's not trying to say that you should do this or that it's good for you. He's just He just wants to do it. It's a mind over matter sort of thing. It's clearly more mental. It's not about being in shape. And you'll find that with every ultra marathon runner. Because I'm fascinated by that way of thinking. But every ultra marathon runner, it's about what it does for them mentally. It's about the accomplishment of being able to do it, but it's, it's more about mind over matter than it is. They're not trying to lose weight, guys. He's not doing this as part of his, his normal conditioning routine. This is something that he has devoted his entire life to because he wants to challenge his body and his mind, and in particular his mind, because he said his mind controls his body. And so he uses his body to challenge what his mind believes his body is capable of. It's very interesting. You know, the psychology of an ultramarathon runner is very interesting. And obviously it's not for everybody. But people are fighting over it. And trying to claim this guy has body dysmorphia. Coincidentally, this comes right after an article came out saying that fit people are prone to body dysmorphia. So you can see where it plants these ideas in people's heads. Whether or not that person read that article, I have no idea, but it was just a little too perfect. The othering of fitness. And we're going to be dealing with this. Like, I mean, they a study came out that showed uh, a massive increase in obesity among children during the last year and a half. They're finding that there was a huge increase in obesity among children. And that there is a uh, just a general obvious increase in obesity among everyone. You know, there were a lot of people talking about gaining weight during Coronavi. And that was a sad thing for me because during the first few months of Coronavi, I remember going out and I would see people running. I would see people walking. I would say between March and May. Now, you know what? It was, it was as soon as all of the BLM riots started happening, all the protests and riots, that was when I suddenly noticed that even in places that weren't near the city, like even on trails, even over by the school, even these places where people go often to walk, I noticed that as soon as the BLM stuff started happening, I noticed a huge drop-off in people going out exercising. And it really never caught back up. Because those first few months, that like March, April, May, I would go and I'd be like, man, there's, there's too many people out here. But I was also kind of happy. I was like, the best thing that anybody could be doing right now during lockdown is exercising. 
So even though I'm kind of pissed that I wanted to come here and be alone, I'm actually happy. <laughs> That's another hot topic shirt. Even though I'm kind of pissed, I'm actually happy, which actually describes me perfectly right now. Despite my ranting and raving, I just have to get this out of my system. I don't feel bad, you know, but anyway, that's how I felt like when I would see people out exercising, I'd be like, I kind of wanted this place to myself, but it's really cool to see people exercising, especially with this imposed lockdown on us. And some of those people were clearly new to it. Like I would see chubby guys out running and I would just think that's great. That's the best thing he could be doing right now for his mind. Let, you know, and his body as well, of course. But it was around the time that the riots all started and everybody was focused on that and scared to go out because of it. That was when I noticed a sudden drop off in people just exercising. And then pretty soon after you hear people talking about like, oh, my, uh, what was the number that people said? They, they, they came up with some stupid saying for it. It was like my COVID. I think they maybe it was like the, their COVID-19, like they gained 19 pounds. I don't remember what it was. It was too stupid of a joke for me to remember. But here I am talking about it. It was something like that. Oh, it's like I I need to work off my COVID-19 because I gained 19 pounds. But yeah, it's come out that children have gained a huge amount of weight. It's brutal, guys. I don't and I don't think people should have to lose weight. I don't think people should have to be in shape. Despite how this might sound, I don't even have like a strict, I don't have strict standards for that kind of thing anyway. Like with women, like I don't like thin women. I don't like women who are like, for that matter, too muscular or in too good of a shape. I like women who are thicker. That's just what I naturally like. And that includes being overweight. You know, I like, I prefer, like for me, like my standard with women, it's as simple as, is she shaped like a woman? And somebody would have a problem with me saying that, but is there, like, I want an hourglass shape, but there are variables at play. Like, I want a woman who has an hourglass shape, but that hourglass can be a a variety of shapes. You know what I mean? Like, that's the shape I want, but it could be wider. It could be taller. But at the end of the day, as a man, I'm attracted to an hourglass shape when someone's weight starts to change that shape, you know, I'm less interested. Not that everything has to be exact. Like, I don't expect a woman's boobs to be huge, you know, or anything like that. But just, I expect, you know, I'm a tr- I can only tell you what I'm attracted to. <laughs> and that's a, that's been lost in this conversation where it's like, oh, you decide what you're attracted to. No, I can tell you the kind of women I'm attracted to They have an hourglass shape. The exact dimensions of that hourglass vary, but I like an hourglass shape. Turns out a lot of people do. Jeffrey Dahmer's dad said that he did it. He liked (laughs) uh, an hourglass shape. Um, But uh, just one of those things, though, where, you know, you can see where there's this kind of campaign. And then when you actually see people saying it, when you actually see people like using those terms to argue about an ultra marathon runner it's his body his choice he runs ultra marathons and you argue with people about it whether he should be doing that whether he has body dysmorphia just insanity this is what's going on in people's minds 
And, and they, they truly are arguing about every single thing they can. And I enjoy taking a little bit of it in, but I think this is just going to be an endurance game. And it might be an ultra marathon. Because I don't really see a light at the end of the tunnel right now. And my sense of dread hasn't gone away recently. And that includes going out. That includes being out there. It includes talking to people. This isn't just me being stuck. Because like, I totally understand the idea that if you spend all your time on social media or just reading about the horrors of the world, if you spend all your time just checking the news, you know, you're going to have a very dark view of the world. It's true. Which is why I've always selectively looked at these things. But what's interesting is that I get the same darn feeling just going to the grocery store. I get the same feeling just walking down the street right now. Hearing my neighbors have a conversation on their their own. I'm on a neighborhood walk last night, and my neighbors are on their own neighborhood walk. And one of them is talking about how her father-in-law didn't get the vaccine, and she hopes he dies. He just dies because it'll make her life easier. It wasn't even a malicious statement. Like, her tone of voice, even though you could tell she was upset, it wasn't even a malicious statement. You could tell that she just was saying that because it'll make her life easier somehow. And that seems to be the vibe that I'm getting when people talk about that. When people talk about vaccinations, non-vaccinated people, they seem to be coming from this point of view that it'll just be easier if these people die. It'll just be easier if these people get out of our way. And to me, that's more insidious than hatred. That sort of passive, well, maybe he'll just die and I won't have to deal with it. Yeah, your marriage is going to go great. You're secretly wishing that your father-in-law dies. But you know what? Maybe her husband feels the same way, because that's where we're at now, too. I mean, there are people who are not just, you know, I mentioned my friend had a breakup over the vaccine. Because that's totally the Internet, guys. Oh, this stuff, it only happens on the Internet. Tell my friend. Somebody should tell my friend that. Somebody should tell this woman down the street that. Oh, yeah, people only draw lines in the sand on the Internet, people. No, this is affecting people's daily lives. We're seeing where that woman in Chicago had custody taken away. She had custody of her son temporarily taken away until she gets vaccinated. This is the world we're living in right now. I don't want to call it dystopian because I can see it getting more dystopian. And this is going to look beautiful. This is going to look lush. This is going to look free. But I also don't want to assume the world is going to go in that direction. Because I can tell you one thing. I have a lot of flaws. I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of problems. I've done my best to work through them. But what I can say for sure, what I can say, and I mean it straight from the heart, is that I have done nothing to contribute to this climate. I have done nothing. I will take responsibility for myself, but in terms of this polarized, angry, hostile, death-wishing, death-seeking climate, I have done nothing to contribute to it. That's why I know that my role is not to participate. 
I have to I have to talk. I have to vent. But I will not participate in this. I will observe it. I think all we can do right now is endure it and stand your ground. Because it seems like the second you're no longer doing that, somebody is trying to knock you off balance. And they have all kinds of justifications for doing that. So I'm coming now from a mindset of endurance. I don't care about winning because there's nothing for me to win. And I'm not going to let anybody put me in a position where I lose either. Because the losing is just as manufactured as the winning. I truly believe that all a sane person can do right now is endure. So do anything you can. Anything that you feel strengthens your endurance, if it's physical, if it's mental, they're all related. You know, I've been much more deeply into meditation again the last couple of weeks. And I look forward to it. You know, I was going through a period where I didn't look forward to meditation. It felt like a burden. It felt like something I didn't have time to do, something I didn't want to do. I even took nine days off from it, something like that. I was working on something, but still, I I took nine days off, which I'd never done. But I'm back to doing it. And, you know, there's a reason people have been doing that for thousands of years. And... uh, it also helps you see things clearly. And I do feel that I'm seeing things fairly clearly right now. And we think of that as a positive, like, oh, I'm seeing things clearly. Well, right now, seeing things clearly doesn't exactly boost your morale. And I think that's a good, that's, that's something that's worth pointing out, is that morale is extremely low. Our country's morale, like even most of the Jabama bin Biden supporters right now, their morale is crushed. Yeah, there are still those people who love the machine, who are like, Jabama bin Biden made the best decisions in the stand of Afghani. At least he's not Trumpsfeld, right? 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 Can you at least, oh, see, so you don't think that Jabama bin Biden is better than Trumpsfeld, huh? Can you let me kill you? <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, we're in that position, too, where it's like there are people who are doubling down. But the vibe I get, like from most Democrats I know, from just everybody, nobody's morale is good right now. And I don't see how it possibly could be. Because if your morale is good right now, it's either because you have no worries in the world, which I can't imagine is true, or it's because, you know, you know, you're, you're just, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not going to speak for anybody else. I just can't imagine the sort of person whose morale is good. But I also see this as the sweet spot. I kind of feel like we're in a sweet spot where it feels like things could come to a head at any moment. It feels like things could fall apart at, at any moment. And that's usually when the best events happen in a movie. That's usually when the most interesting or the most triumphant moments take place in a movie. 
But I don't even know that we're there yet. Like I said, I wouldn't call any of this dystopian yet. There's shades of dystopia. But like anything, dystopia is relative and it is gradual. But it does feel like we're heading in a dystopian direction. And I don't know that any one individual or any group can do much to counteract that. Which is why it's so important just to endure. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. 